Like I said previously, we begin a series in the book of 1 John today. I'm going to tackle the first four verses. We'll see how far we get. It might even be the first two verses, if you're lucky. So let me pray uh, as we begin our time uh, looking at God's word. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you now because we need you. We need your word. It is truth. And we need your word to set us free from all that enslaves us so that we might be free indeed. So make yourself known and all your saving power. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, why would anyone believe in the Christian faith today? We live in a society where there are so many options before us. There are so many options in so many spheres of life, so many facets of life. And we live in a society that doesn't simply have options, but a society that's also multicultural. And so when you have a society with both options that's multicultural, what you have is, before every Australian person, a religious smorgasbord. There are many religions to choose from, as there are flavours of ice cream. And I know with kids there are lots of flavours of ice cream to choose from. And we live in a multicultural society where we actually meet a lot of people from different faiths. We meet people at work, in our families, who indeed have different faith convictions and indeed no faith convictions. And I'm sure this is the case for many of us. If you look at some of those people, you look at their lives, those of other faiths, those perhaps of no faith, and you look at a person and you think, actually... They're a decent, kind, loving person. And then they look at your life and then you wonder as a Christian, what might they say of you? Could they say that you're a decent, kind and loving kind of person? You might look at the lives of Christian people and you wonder, is it possible, is it possible to believe in the Christian faith today? Why Christianity? Why, out of all the options before Australian people, why Christianity? I mean, why even pick one? That question that I raised before, aren't all religions the same? In fact, that, that saves you having to make a decision about any religion, or if indeed you do, it doesn't really matter because, as people, many people assert, they're all the same. Um, there's that analogy often that people use. You know, God is on top of a mountain and all the different religions that we see in our world are just different routes up to the same place on that mountain. And I don't know about you, but when you think about it, as a Christian person, that kind of analogy of a mountain with different paths leading to the same God has has some weight to it. It has some emotional freight. I mean, you don't want to be the kind of person at, say, the Christmas party uh, out for dinner who really challenges the assertion that all religions are the same. Well, one person has challenged that statement. His name's Stephen Prothero. 
And he wrote a book called God is Not One. We're up to the second point, or point B under the first point. Aren't all religions the same in your outline if you've got one? And Stephen is an expert in comparative religion. And in the book, he takes on this idea that all religions are essentially saying the same thing. He says the statement not only lacks intellectual credibility, but is also disrespectful to the major world religions. Because he says, although there are some ethical similarities, for example, the golden rule, as soon as you dig a little deeper than below the surface, what you find is that all the religions in our world have very different, have a very different understanding, in fact, of who God is of what it is to be a human and what it is to live in our world. For example, um, many of you might know there are some religions that believe in a multiple number of gods, polytheism. There are those religions, like Judaism, Christianity or Islam, who believe in just one god. But neither Judaism or Islam hold the concept anything like what Christians hold in terms of the doctrine of the Trinity, which is not polytheism either. Some religions understand that God is a personal being, like he's someone you can get to know. But in fact, there are many religions, and particularly a lot of Eastern religions, who don't believe that God is personal at all. For example, uh, some forms of Buddhism think of God as the ultimate form of detachment. So it's something that you can't, someone that you can't get to know. Some forms of Hinduism see God as Krishna or Shiva, but other forms of Hinduism see the whole world, the whole cosmos, as one big God. Some religions don't even have an ultimate, the concept of God or a divine being. For example, Shintoism um, deals with the concept of kami, which basically says, as far as I can understand, something approximating our experience of life is the divine. There are also differences when it comes to how they think about what it is to be human. Islam, for example, believes that all humans have free will. And so therefore, every single human being is capable of doing God's will. And so in Islam, they don't need a saviour. And sin is simply a defect, not a radical problem that binds the human will. Buddhism And Hinduism see humanity as trapped in a cycle of rebirths. You're familiar with this. And Shintoism, again, doesn't even have an understanding of God and humanity. It just says that sometimes there's this imbalance that we experience as human people. So just there's a just a snapshot of different religions. Clearly they're not all the same. So which is it? Which is it? To say that all religions are the same is, uh, Prothero says, is dangerous. Because what it does is it shuts off any conversation about the differences of religion. And in addition, he says that religion, that to say all religions are the same, is a, is a form of uh, intellectual empiricism, imperialism, sorry. Uh, that is, that my understanding of all the world religions is right and yours isn't and I'm going to impose that on you. To say that all religions are the same is at best a baseless assertion. There's not anything really behind that and at worst 
It's dangerous. So if, if you would concede that there are significant differences among world religions, then who gets to say who God is? What one of those religions, or if any of them, are right? Oprah once asked that question in one of her shows. Who gets to say? Who gets to say who God is? Um, and usually what many modern people think about, uh, have come to think about religion in sen- is in the sense that all these religions form part of the truth. And if we, if we were to take maybe the best of all of them, then that might give us the whole truth. I don't know if you've come across the uh, metaphor or the analogy, the story of the blind men grasping at an elephant. Is anyone familiar with that analogy? Right, number of us. So basically what the analogy says is that there are five or six blind men and they're all holding different sections of this elephant and one man is holding its leg and he, say, he says, I, I think that God is a tree. And the other, another man who's blind is holding the tusk and he says, I think God is a, is a spear. And another man's holding the tail and he thinks that God's kind of fluffy and hairy. And another man's holding or putting his hands on the side of the elephant and he says, I think God is a wall. Blind men all touching different sections of the one elephant. Now, I don't know about you, but I first came across that in year seven uh, at school with my English teacher, and I I found it very powerful as a kid. I don't know if you've come across that as you've talked to people about your Christian faith, as you've heard people dialogue about different religions. It's a very powerful analogy because it basically affirms every person and every religion But it's got two significant problems. A missionary who, by the name of Leslie Newbing, Newbing was a missionary in India for over 30 years. And in fact, he encountered this story and this way of thinking a lot because it's actually the source for it is in Hinduism. And he he thought about it, he was a very good thinker. And he realised that the problem with that analogy of the blind men grasping the elephant is that the person making that assessment, that the different people are touching different parts of the elephant, himself is not blind. To say that all religions have part of the truth, that none, no religion ha- can have the whole truth, well, what you need in terms of the analogy is you need to see the whole elephant to be able to make that assessment. You can see the whole elephant when you say all religions are the same, but everyone else, they're not quite as enlightened as you because they're the blind people grasping at the elephant. All religions lead to God, many people say. But the only way you can say that is if you're at the top of the mountain. It sounds humble to say that all religions lead to God, but it's actually a form of arrogance because what it says is, I see, but you don't. And second, any second observation of the problem with that analogy is that who is the one? 
Who is the one who can truly see above everything else? Who's the one who's, beyond, who's got the capacity beyond human capacity to see? Who's the one above everything? That person is, in fact, God. God's the only one in that analogy who uh, can make the assessment, can make the assessment. And I might add a third one. It assumes that God has not revealed himself. See, that analogy assumes that we as humans are on this road to discovery. We're grasping, we're looking, we're searching and we're trying to find out and discover who God is. But that's not the way the Bible presents humanity. The Bible doesn't present humanity as on a quest for God. The Bible presents humanity as running away from God. And it in fact says that we have not discovered God, but God, most importantly, most wonderfully, has revealed himself to us. That's what we mean by the word revelation. You'll see that on your outline there at point two. God has not revealed himself. Sorry, God has revealed himself in a particular time, in a particular place, and in a full and final way. Up to point two. See, God's revealed himself. God's the one who's shown who he is to us as humanity. This is the claim that Christianity makes. And that's John's point as he opens up his letter. Why don't you open up there to chapter 1, verse 1 of the book of 1 John. You see that this is John's argument. As he opens his letter, he opens it in this kind of strange but beautifully poetic way. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. You see what John's describing? He's describing not blind men grasping, but he's describing, well, just a human encounter, which might sound a little pedestrian. How's this an encounter of God? How's this knowing who God is above all the religions? I mean, yesterday I heard, I saw, I touched, I heard the dog barking, I saw the birds that the dog was barking at, and I tried to touch him, it was more than a touch, but he ran away. I mean, that was not exactly a divine experience. That which we have heard, verse 1, that which we have seen and touched. You know, on the internet, if you're this way inclined, you can read Albert Einstein's doctoral thesis. And you'll be very pleased to know it's only 26 pages. It's entitled, A New Determination of Molecular Dimensions, and was submitted to the University of Zurich in 1905. Apparently there's only five or six people in the world who can actually understand it. Because you need some pretty hefty and heavy intellectual power to be able to understand at least how Einstein understood the way molecules, little things work, how you get your head around it. But that's just molecules. What about God? I mean, if it takes an Einstein just to grasp some knowledge of how our world works, what about God? 
What kind of intellectual horsepower would you need to understand God? What kind of moral brilliance might you need to understand God? What's the criteria necessary to understand who God is? Is there in verse 1? To hear, to see, to look at. See, what do you need to understand God? You just need to be human. John didn't have God reveal himself because of his intellect or because of his moral brilliance. He just saw, he just heard, and he touched. John, the writer of this letter, is also the writer of the Gospel of John and the Book of Revelation. And here he's writing this letter, perhaps in his late 90s, even some scholars say he could have been over 100. And there he's recalling back to his early years when Jesus was with him, when he encountered the person of Jesus. And he says as he encounters the person of Jesus, he heard him. He saw him. He touched him. His encounter with Jesus wasn't a fleeting flight of fantasy. It wasn't a mystical message that he received. It wasn't some vague kind of vision that he was brought up into. It was an encounter with a person who spoke and lived before John. And so here is the grounding for John's letter. In fact, here is the grounding for the Christian faith. It's simply in this person of Jesus, in the humanity of who Jesus is. He heard. He heard Jesus. He heard Jesus' voice. John would have known Jesus' inflection, his pitch, his cadence. He saw Jesus, what his face looked like he saw what Jesus did with his own hands and those same hands he touched. See, John wasn't seeing and hearing from afar. When it says he touched, I think John's saying he knew Jesus intimately. There was a human connection between him and Jesus. And it also says there, after that fourth that, that they looked, which is... Sounds similar in English, looking and seeing, but uh, in the original, the sense to that is uh, John saw, heard, touched, but also examined, like you would a piece of fruit that you get. You don't take any piece of fruit. You look at it and you, you test the avocado. You press it. This, this is what John, he saw, he heard, and he considered deeply. See, John's saying, I knew Jesus. I knew Jesus, and this wasn't some kind of idea of Jesus that I knew. This wasn't a rumour of Jesus that I heard about. This was the person of Jesus that I encountered. This was not a phantom form of Jesus. This was not a philosophical idea about Jesus. John's saying he encountered the human Jesus. But there's a problem with that, isn't there? That's point C. There's a problem with that because it doesn't sound very spiritual to encounter the human Jesus. And this is the problem that had crept up on the early church. 
because after all, Jesus wasn't around in his humanity, at least on earth anymore. And so how important could Jesus' humanity be if he's not present with the early church as a human? And so it would seem that there were those who wanted to update the Christian faith. Yes, that worked when Jesus was around to speak about the human Jesus, but he's, he's not here. He's been raised and he's ascended into heaven. And so it would seem like there was this new informa- innovation that some thought was necessary. Uh, these innovators or brand consultants, as we might know them these days, John's got a much harsher word for them in chapter 2. Why don't you flick over there to chapter 2. You'll see why John is writing. He says, I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. Those who want to mess about, who want to change the essential nature of who Jesus is, are leading people astray. You might remember from the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter speaks about the pressure that the church is under in the first century. And there are some tremendous pressures, but most of the pressures in the book of 1 Peter are external. Uh, The government, those who would persecute the church who aren't Christian. But in the book of 1 John, the pressure upon the church is internal. They're in... Chapter 2, verse 19, they went out from us. Those who were a part of the church are actually leading the church astray. I don't think that that was perhaps their intention at the start to destroy the Christian church. Possibly they wanted to improve it by changing it, but this is why John is writing, because there are some fundamental realities that you cannot change about the Christian faith and that you don't want to change about the Christian faith. And so here, what John is doing as those who would seek to update Jesus, what John's doing is dragging the early church back to the person of Jesus, right up into the face of who Jesus is. And isn't that something for us to think about in a world where Christians would want to update, will who would want to rebrand who Jesus is. I think we need to heed what John is saying and come back to the person of Jesus, who Jesus is. Because who was this person that John encountered? You'll see there at the end of verse 1 that John is proclaiming the word of life. See what John is saying? To speak of Jesus is to speak of the one who brings life. And what sort of life? There in verse 2. It's eternal life. The Jesus who was encountered by John in his humanity, that which was heard, seen and touched, is also encountered by God the Father in his divinity there in verse 2. That which was from the very beginning They're words that echo the start of the Bible at the start of verse 1. And so the message of Christianity is a person. 
It's not, first and foremost, a set of ethical values, although there are many ethical implications, nor is Christianity merely tools for self-improvement to make your life slightly better, although there is a lot of help for the self. Nor is, nor is it merely a philosophy or worldview, although it will utterly reshape the way you see the world. John is saying, we proclaim this human Jesus whom we encountered as a human. He is our message. This was the message, the core message of all the early Christians. And so that's, that's important. That's important as we consider who Jesus is in a marketplace of religions. Because if the ground and centre of Christianity is this human person of Jesus, then we're able to make some assessment about the validity or otherwise of Christianity. See, if you want to work out whether Christianity is true, you've got to work with who Jesus is. You've got to understand who he is as a person in his historical context. And this is something that not just Christians struggle with, but indeed our world struggles with. Um, some people get around this by simply saying that, oh, Jesus never existed. Now, um, one, one historian did try this on for size in the 1980s. I can't remember his name. Do you remember his name, John or David? Uh, a historian... It, it, was it? Okay. Um, he, one historian tried it on for size, and it wasn't Christians who came down on him. It was the whole entire scholarship of, of uh, the whole entire um, uh, group of historians who basically refuted that idea so strongly. You see there a quote, um, because what it understands is this quote is that you can't get around the reality of the person of Jesus. It's a quote there from a man called H.G. Wells, who was a prolific author. He wrote social commentaries and history, but he's most known for his sci-fi novels. Anyone read an H.G. Wells novel? Yes, I, I don't read sci-fi, but apparently they're very good. He was not a Christian himself, but he said this. Have a look, it's on your outline. I am an historian. I'm not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very centre of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. See, H.G. Wells finds the reality of world history spinning around the one whom John encountered. And that means that Jesus is pretty unique. But, you know, there's... Lots of unique figures in history. An expert in world religions is a man called Hudson Smith. He wrote this book, which was hugely popular. It was first uh, published in 1959, and it's sold three million copies since, which is not bad for a book on religion. Hudson Smith was a leading scholar in comparative religion, and in this book, what he does is he looks at all the major world religions... And he looks at their claims. And what he says in the book is there are only two people in human history whose lives have just been so incredible, so beautiful, so profound, so pure that their followers have wanted to worship them. Uh, anyone want to guess who those two might be? 
Well, yeah, that's a pretty good guess. Well done, Mandy. Anyone want to guess the other one? Yeah, uh, no, not Muhammad. No, oh man, good one, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama. Two people whose lives are so incredible that their worshippers have, have their followers have wanted to worship them. Jesus said, "No one knows the Father except the Son." Jesus says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. You know the difference between Buddha and Jesus? Jesus crossed the line. When Buddha's followers saw his life, such beautiful life, I wouldn't dispute that, they wanted to worship him. But he said, don't worship me. Don't worship me. Follow my teachings. Follow my Dharma. But when Jesus disciples wanted to worship him, he accepted it as the one who was from the Father, as the one who brought people into relationship from the Father, as the one for whom the Father allowed the worship and glory of indeed the world. You see, who gets to say who God is? God does. And what we see in the book of 1 John is that Jesus is the one who reveals who God is. Jesus is what God said he is like. Jesus reveals God humanly, personally, verifiably, uniquely, finally and definitively. Because if you were to make up, if John was to make up what he was saying, if in fact in the first century he wanted to make up this kind of religion called Christianity, well, the way you do it, and we've seen this through history, is what you do is you have a, you have a revelation privately in your bedroom. If I wanted to make up a, you know, a religion called Stu's religion, I was talking to my kids about this and they thought it was laughable. But, uh, you know, you do it alone. You know, when you're in your bedroom and... Uh, let's say that uh, God gave you these golden tablets, you had special glasses, and then when you said, Stu, where are the golden tablets? Well, you said, I don't know, they've been buried somewhere, I can't find them, God's taken them away. But what you don't do, if you're trying to make up a religion, you don't make it about a person, and you don't make it public. Because if it's about a person who is public, the problem is, you can verify or falsify anything to do with this person. And how you do it is by what people saw him do or not do. Um, This is the way our courts of law operate. They still operate. I mean, in fact, even you see it in the paper, there's CCTV. But CCTV generally, in and of itself, is not sufficient evidence to convict someone. What is needed is a what? An eyewitness. And so if John is making up this religion, he's just hung himself. Because John's saying, I didn't just see him. I didn't just touch him. He's saying, look there in verse 1, we saw him. We heard him. And so that means that the claims that John are making are either verifiable or falsifiable. And so you can see that Christianity is different 
to other religions and even other Christian sects. It's different to Joseph Smith and the Mormons, for which a revelation was privately given. It's different to Islam, because Muhammad was given a revelation in the cave when the angel Gabriel came to him. In fact, Christianity puts all its eggs in the Jesus basket, which is unlike any other religions, unlike Islam, because Islam could still be true without Muhammad. Even if Muhammad did or didn't do the things that are attributed to him, the core tenets of Islam wouldn't change because the core tenets of Islam aren't about Muhammad. They're about Allah. But that's not the case for Christianity. Christianity stands or falls on the person of Jesus. In fact, Paul says this in the letter to the Corinthians. If Jesus wasn't around, let alone if he hadn't been raised from the dead, we may as well go home because it's a waste of time. Have you ever noticed in the Gospel accounts, and we'll finish it up here, how often minor characters are named in the Gospel accounts? In fact, someone a couple of months ago asked me about this. It was in one of the readings. That was a reading from Mark chapter 15, verse 21 which is just before Jesus is crucified, it says a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way from the country and they forced him to carry the cross. Why would it matter who carried the cross? Indeed, why would it matter the family line of the person who carried the cross? One um, very eminent historian, one of the leading historians when it comes to the New Testament, particularly the Gospels, a man called Richard Borkham, says essentially, and I've kind of summarised this and put my flavour on it, he says that the way that the Gospels name people is like a footnoting. You know when you write an academic essay and you make a point and you put a little number and then at the bottom of the page, you say where you got it from. It's a footnote. It substantiates what you've asserted. Well, the names embedded within the gospel narratives, there are heaps, substantiate what is written about Jesus. Because what the gospel writers are saying when they say Simon of Cyrene, whose kids are Alex and Rufus, is if you don't believe me, what you read here, say, in the gospel of Mark or the gospel of Luke, go and talk to Simon, and if he's dead, you can go and talk to Alexander, or you can go and talk to Rufus. If you don't believe me that Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead, then you'd better go and talk to Jairus. He's a public figure. He was known. Do you see the way the Bible comes together, the way the Gospels come together, the way we think about Christianity? It spins around the person of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus, people who saw Jesus, who wrote about him, eyewitnesses who testified to him. And there, at the start of verse 1, there is that phrase, in the beginning, which Borkham says as well, occurs within strategic points in the Gospels and the New Testament record. Because the phrase, from the beginning, doesn't just refer to like a temporal thing, like, you know, say from Genesis, but actually is a way of saying, uh, and Borkham finds this in a lot of literature in the first century, it's a way of saying we were there from the start, from the beginning. 
From the beginning, from the start, we saw him, we heard him, we touched him. Jesus says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And so if God has revealed himself in a certain man, then we have to go to this man. We have to go to him. Christians have always said, if you want to know God, you have to stare. You have to stare in the face of Jesus. You have to hear his word because the fullest revelation of who God is, is in the person of Jesus, is in the crucified Jesus. As we've celebrated over Easter, we need to look upon Jesus outside on that hill in Jerusalem, a naked man, a man in blood and shame. There is the man who reveals who God is to us. Amen. Please stand as we sing.